Well, why don't I pray, and then uh, we'll get into trying to understand what's going on in that passage. So, Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord, and thank you that um, it is something grounded in history. Um, and, Lord, thank you that it's something that uh, teaches us and corrects us and trains us in righteousness. And we pray you do that uh, this morning as we look at it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, we are starting a new series today in the book of First Samuel. I'm going to start by showing you a photo. So this photograph uh, here um, is, uh, I know you're going to expect me to talk about baseball, but I'm not. This is a human interest story that transcends baseball, okay? Uh, this is a moment early last month when the Chicago Cubs manager told a young rookie player that he made the opening day roster. Uh, and so that's Ethan Roberts there uh, with his hand on his face, just in great joy. Uh, and that was his lifetime dream fulfilled. Uh, and you can see the joy in his face. You can see it there. And this actually made like national news. It wasn't just on ESPN. It made it everywhere. Um, but for hundreds of other people on that day across Major League Baseball, it was a, the opposite. It was a day of disappointing news. Hundred, more, hundreds and hundreds of people found out they didn't make the team. And this thing that they've been working for and hoping since their first day in Little League, you know, when they bought the big league chew, chewing gum and went to bat for the first time, that dream ripped away. They didn't make the team. And the question is, what do we do with disappointments like that? And we've been focusing on that already this morning in our, in our liturgy, but what do we do with disappointments like that, with, with unfulfilled longings, with loss, with sadness? What do we do with those things? And so as we look at the... Right now, the first seven chapters of this Old Testament book in 1 Samuel, we'll look at this over a course of weeks, uh, much of the book actually addresses this kind of disappointment. It actually shows us what, what we can do with that kind of disappointment, those kinds of unfulfilled longings, and that's exactly where the book begins. And, you know, perhaps where you woke up today, you know, you woke up in a, a season of disappointment or a season of longing, or uh, some kind of brokenness in your life, a longing that's unfulfilled, you know, the longing to be married, to have children, to have the career move, to, to achieve notoriety or status, whatever it is. Here's what this shows us. Almost everything we turn to for joy, for security, for hope, for fulfillment, almost everything that we turn to is just not up to the task. Uh, even Ethan Roberts made the team, he's gonna have some bad outings. He's gonna give up some home runs. It, 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 whatever we turn to doesn't live up to the task. But the great hope of Christianity is that the God of the Bible is big enough, he's transcendent enough to carry all of our hopes, to fulfill our deepest longings, to fill us with joy, to give us the security that we need in all circumstances. And that's the God we meet on every single page of scripture and is particularly evident in the book of 1 Samuel. In most of 1 Samuel, by the way, it's about three men Three national leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David. But I want you to notice something. The book actually starts talking about a faithful, humble woman. Well, one of the great things about the Bible is just about every time God's people are going to go through a major transition, the story actually starts with a woman. The story of Moses, it starts with Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter. Before you ever learn about Moses. The story of Jesus Christ himself, it begins as a story about Mary and Elizabeth. And so the story we're looking at over the next couple of weeks is no different. First Samuel is the story of Israel moving from sort of this tribal ruled nation into a monarchy. 
into some sort of established thing. But the story, it begins actually with the story of Hannah. And we're going to see uh, a few things in the first chapter. We're going to see three things. We're going to see that Hannah, she starts in the place that we always start when things go wrong. Uh, but then we find that she actually turns to the place we rarely turn, and then we see that Hannah finds the joy and security that result only when we turn to God. So the place we always start, the place we rarely turn, and the joy and security that result only when we turn to God. And so let's start where Hannah starts. And she starts in this, this waking up and this longing, this unfulfilled hope, but actually her story starts in despair. And in these first few verses, we read two things that draw us into Hannah's disappointment. And the first is that, uh, this is an awkward one, I'm just going to tell you. Uh, she's not Elkanah's only wife. Awkward. <laughs> and I just want to point out that uh, you, you actually read that in Scripture a lot, you know, especially in the Old Testament, you find out this person had like multiple wives. And, and you think, oh, well, that's like a godly person, so maybe that's okay, I don't know what to do with that. Well, actually... Uh, the Bible is never supportive of polygamy. It never supports it. It never, never says it's a good idea. Uh, so even, there, even though it's in there a lot, every time you come across it in the Old Testament, it's actually a source of strife, of difficulty, and of sin. And usually it's motivated by selfishness or lack of trust in God. Um, and that's certainly true if you think about Abraham, the, the father of the faith. Um, it certainly expressed a, a lack of trust in God, and then it created all kinds of strife in, in his life and in those who we married. But this is the situation Hannah's in. Uh, and so it starts out, uh, and this first source of massive disappointment is that she's not her husband's only wife. But second then are the words at the end of verse two. Look at this at the end of verse two. If you, if you don't have it open, it's page 229 in the black Bibles in front of you. You wanna have this open in front of you. Here's the words at the end of verse two, and this is her second great disappointment. Panina, had children, but Hannah had none. And those words, Hannah had none, they draw us immediately into the world of longings, of disappointment, of tears, and frustration, of unanswered prayers. And for Hannah, not having any children, it's doubly painful, by the way. It, of course, it robbed her of the joy of motherhood, so no kids to tell bedtime stories to, no one to teach or pass on her wisdom to. No one to bring her dandelions. No bruises to kiss, no cries to calm. But not only that, in the ancient world that Hannah inhabits, children were your security. And so the more children you had, the more people you had to work in the fields. The more workers in the fields, the more financially secure you were. Children were also your retirement plan. It was your son's responsibility to look after you in your old age. But Hannah had none. Hannah had none. No joy, no security. And whatever your own particular unfulfilled longing might be, whether it's a longing for children, those words, but Hannah had none, they describe perfectly the longing to be married, to have the career, to have the house, to have the body, to have the friendships, Whatever it is, those four words, but Hannah had none. They describe perfectly Hannah's situation and perhaps your own. 
And the narrative turns very quickly. It turns in verse 3 to take us to this place called Shiloh. So, you know, talked about where she lived, but then very quickly we, we go to this place called Shiloh. And before the temple was built in Jerusalem, Shiloh was the main place of worship for the Israelites. That's where they would go to make their sacrifices and worship God. And so Hannah, her husband, her sister wife, and all her sister wife's children, they go to Shiloh to worship. And I like what Eugene Peterson says about places of worship. He says, in the normal course of things, a place of worship does not make us into something we are not, but rather intensifies whatever we bring to it. And that's why we say all the time, like, if you're coming in with something, don't leave it at the door, come, come in with it. And for Hannah, going to the place of worship, it doesn't solve her disappointment. It actually intensifies it. Because look at what happens when they get to Shiloh. Penina, the sister wife, goes on the attack. Look at verse 6. It says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. And that word for provoking, it's, it's a really unusual Hebrew expression. In a sense, it doesn't belong here because it's actually the word for an intense storm, like a hurricane. It means to thunder, to roar like a storm. And it's actually the only time in the Bible that this word is used to describe anything other than a storm. And so the image here is of intensity, of relentless, obnoxious, provoking. I mean, imagine this. They're going to the, to the house of the Lord where you bring your prayers and petitions before him. And they've been doing this year after year. And her prayer for her son has never been answered. And her sister wife provokes her. Like a storm. And look what it says about Hannah at the end of verse 7. Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Now, what is that describing? Not sleeping, not eating. These are classic symptoms of depression. If you've ever experienced that, you know this. And so both Hannah's circumstances and her rival have driven her to depression. And there it is on the pages of Scripture. Now, Hannah's husband, you know, he's got two wives, but he's not all that bad. Uh, because in the next few verses, he actually tries a few ways to cheer her up. Uh, first, he tries with romance, or I kind of read this maybe as humor, because he says to her in her sadness, he's, he's like, hey, am I not better than ten sons? <laughs> if I said that to Emmy, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, she'd laugh for days. And then notice back in verse 5. It says that he would give a double portion of food. I mean, he's trying, but maybe not the best solution. You know, I see you're sad, so here's an extra steak, and later we'll go for ice cream. <laughs> he tries romance. He tries gifts. So he's, he's trying. He's, he's trying to be the dutiful husband. And I, and I think what this is trying to show us, though, is, is right where we started this morning, that the things we tend to turn to for fulfillment and joy and security, they just aren't up to the task. And just take romance as an example. If you're thinking that a spouse is the answer to all your troubles, spend about a week as a married person and you'll quickly realize that a spouse is often the source of new troubles that you never had before. I mean, maybe this is a personal experience, maybe not, but if you're the kind of person who always pushes the toothpaste from the end of the tube, and if you know me and Emmy, you know which one I am, it's almost guaranteed that you'll marry someone who pushes from the middle 
It's always that way. God guarantees it. That's just the way it is. That is how it is. It's not that a spouse isn't a good gift. And by the way, the person that pushes from the middle, they don't even know that's a thing they do. They just think that's what you do. And then the next day, magically, all the toothpaste is where it should be in the tube. I don't know. It's not that a spouse isn't a good gift. They are. But they are not the solution to your joy. And they are not the solution to your security in this life. Because you always marry a flawed person. And your own flaws, by the way, are always intensified in a marriage. And so, yes, there is joy and there is security that comes in a marriage. But it's not ultimate joy. It's not ultimate security. Marriage is often a source of strife and insecurity as well. Ernest Becker, he was an anthropologist studying American culture in the mid-20th century, and by the way, also an atheist. And he actually observed the way that American culture in particular elevated romance as the chief source of joy and security in a person's life in the mid-20th century. And I don't think much has changed since he looked at this. And here's what he said about it. He said, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. And there's already a problem there, isn't isn't there? Because you should never get married to fulfill your own life. And then he goes on, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? He says, we want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, our feelings of nothingness. And do you see what he's saying? In other words, we have elevated the romantic partner, the spouse, to God-like territory. The romantic life partner is now the one who will redeem us, who will rid us of our faults and our feeling of nothingness. And he goes on to say this, and remember he's saying this as an atheist, he says, no human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. There is not a human relationship that can handle all of your joy and all of your security, whether that's a spouse or a child. And so what is it that you've elevated to the position of Godhood in your life? If it's anything other than God himself, it can't bear the burden. It will let you down. It will crush you. A marriage, children, a career, money, none of it can redeem you. None of it can redeem you from your faults and your feelings of nothingness. Only a God who is bigger than you, bigger than marriage, bigger than children, only a God who is love itself can do those things. And after what seems in the text like years of disappointment, depression, and thundering provocation, Hannah finally comes to grips with the fact that she is elevated having a childhood to Godhood status in her life. A child to redeem her, to rid her of her faults, her feelings of nothingness. And in the next few verses, she finally turns to the place that we rarely turn. And that's point two, the place we rarely turn. Now, if you're a Christian, you almost certainly have turned here before, and you've turned here many times, and I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to diminish the hours that most of us have probably spent praying for things that we're disappointed about. But if you're not a Christian, where Hannah turns is a place where you may not have turned yet to fulfill your disappointments. Hannah gets up from dinner and walks right into the very presence of God. Look at verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking, you know, her double portions and her extra ice cream in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And the Hebrew word there for stood up, it it refers to decisive action. Uh, A number of years ago when we were living in Europe, we went on a a vacation 
to Spain. And we went to this town in Spain uh, where uh, bullfighting was founded, which not necessarily the nicest sport in the world, if you know the point of it and what happens at the end. But nonetheless, we were like, hey, it's a cultural thing. Let's see if we can explore this a little bit and try and understand it. So Emmy's reading in the guidebook or on a blog, and it says, oh, they sell tickets to the bullfighting in the bull ring uh, outside the train station. And she, ha she somehow gets it in her mind that you just go up to the ticket counter at the train station. And so I'm like, no, I mean, I think that like, people will be out here selling them, maybe like scalpers, I don't know, but I, I don't think we go into the train station and get the tickets. No, I am sure that we go into the train station and we ask the ticket agent and he will sell us tickets. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure we don't, but I'm just gonna go with you on this one. So we walk in to the train station and obviously there's a language barrier thing going on too. And then we walks up to the, the man selling tickets and, and she said, we'd like to get some tickets to the bullfighting. And he, he says, excuse me? And she said, we'd like to get some tickets to the bullfighting. And he goes, ma'am, this is the train station. And she goes, I know, but the guidebook said we can get tickets at the train station for bullfighting. He goes, ma'am, where would you like to go? To the bullfighting. <laughs> We're a train station. And I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm moving further and further away because I don't want to be associated with this. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, we never went to the bullfighting, but that was decisiveness. She had decided, Emmy had decided she wanted tickets and she had decided that was the way we were gonna get them. And so that's decisive action. That's the picture of Hannah here. She gets up from this meal and she, she's like, I need to go to the house of the Lord. And so she stood up, she resolved, she made a choice. Nothing was gonna deter her. And she goes to do something she had never done before. Actually, Hannah goes to do something almost no one, particularly no woman, had ever done before. Because look where she goes, verse 9. Second half of verse 9. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And then the rest is what he observes of her going inside. And so Hannah, with all the determination she can muster, she walks straight into the presence of God. She walks right past Eli the priest, right into the house of God. And at the time that she does this, this is so unconventional. Normally, what a person would do is go to the priest, they would bring a sacrifice, and the priest would uh, pray for them, or lead them in a prayer. But Hannah walks boldly past Eli, straight into the presence of God. And by all accounts, Hannah seems to be the first woman, and maybe even the first ordinary person, not a national leader, not a religious leader, the first ordinary person to walk into the presence of God in this way and present her request to God without the priest doing it for her. And in this way, Hannah becomes a model for prayer for generations. And if you look at her prayer, I want you to notice three things. First, her prayer starts where many of our prayers for our disappointments start. They start with tears. Prayers of lament, they're the most common kind of prayer in the Psalms. And here's what that's telling us. It's more, listen, it's more than okay to pray your pains. It's more than okay to bring to God your disappointments, to tell him how you really feel. Look at verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord. Do you see that? Weeping bitterly. And in verse 11, she tells God about her misery. And so her prayers start, or many of our prayers for disappointment, they start with tears. Listen, she's a model for prayer. And secondly, look at how Hannah addresses God in prayer. I love this, verse 11. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, 
if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me. Now to say Lord Almighty is to say Lord of all might, of all power, of all strength. It's to say Lord who is the cosmic authoritative ruler of all things. And then think of this, little insignificant Hannah who herself has no might, no power, no strength, no authority. She approaches the presence of God and says, look on my misery and remember me. Well, do you know what this means? This means that there is no person, no matter how insignificant, how powerless, how weak, who is not able to present themselves before the Lord Almighty, the Lord of all might, of all power, of all strength, the cosmic authoritative ruler of all things, to present yourself before him and say to him, Lord, look on me and remember me. Uh, Madeline Langle in her book, Walking on Water, if you're an artist, you should read this book, by the way, but she tells a story that her son-in-law told her. And the story goes, a young disciple of a rabbi comes to him and says, Rabbi, I love you. The rabbi looks up from his books and says to the young disciple, do you know what hurts me? The disciple looks back and says, what are you talking about? I'm trying to tell you how much I appreciate you, how much I respect you, how much I love you. And the rabbi says, if you don't know what hurts me, how could you love me? And then Langle writes, reflecting on that story, she says, no, listen to this, no matter how much we are hurt, God knows about it, cares about it, and so through his love, we are sometimes unable to let go of our hurts. And would you just stop and ponder that for a second? What is keeping you from approaching the Lord Almighty? From bringing him your disappointment, your pain? In her misery, Hannah pours out her soul before the Lord Almighty. And he listens and he cares and through his love, she's able to let go of her hurts. And so listen, the Christian God is the sort of God who cares for small, broken, failed people. He meets them with compassion and goodness. The Bible says that he is our ever-present help in time of need. Now, at the start of verse 11, it says that Hannah made a vow, and that's the third thing we need to see in her prayer. She, she makes this vow. And look at the rest of verse 11. And do not forget your servant, but give her a son. And then here's the vow. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so Hannah prays in her misery for a son, but she actually vows to give her son to the Lord. The detail about him serving the Lord all the days of his life and no razor being used on his head, it's what's called a Nazarite vow. And essentially, she's, she vows that her son will leave her family and serve the Lord as a priest in the temple of God. And in effect, Hannah's prayer here is, God, I want a son, not for me, but for you. In other words, I want the answer to my prayer to be something that glorifies you, that serves you. The, the best answers to our prayers are not the ones that will draw us away from God, but they'll draw us towards dependence on Him, even after we get the thing that we asked for. Uh, let, me, let me put it another way. 
Uh, God almost never will give you the thing you asked for if you're going to make a God out of it. He'll almost never give you the thing you asked for if you're going to make a God out of it. If you're going to worship that instead of him. And so I said before, if you're not a Christian, you've probably never turned to God with your disappointments before. You've probably never turned to him in this way before. But also, think about this. If you're a Christian, perhaps you've never turned to God in this way with your disappointments. How often are your prayers asking for things that you would elevate to God-like status if you got them? And why would God give you that thing? Why would he give you that if the thing God wants for you most is himself? For him to be at the center of your life, not children, not a spouse, not a career, not whatever it is you need to fill in the blank with. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there may be other reasons God doesn't give you some of the things you ask for in prayer. You might not be making a God out of the things you're asking for and still not getting what you're asking for. So I want to acknowledge that. And honestly, there's a really simple answer to that one, that the thing you're asking for either isn't God's will for your life, or right now it's not God's timing. And so the answer might be wait, or the answer might be no. And both of those, by the way, are valid answers. So a valid answer is God saying, yes, here's the thing you asked for. A valid answer is also God saying, no, that's not my will for your life. Or a valid answer is God saying, wait. And they're all valid answers because remember who Hannah addresses in her prayer. She says, Lord Almighty. And if the reason your prayers aren't um, being answered is either no or not now, do you know what that means? That actually means you're like Jesus. Because Jesus Christ, he had a prayer turned down at the moment of his greatest desperation, just before he was to give up his life through immense suffering. He prayed to his father this in Luke chapter 22. He said, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, in other words, the death he was going to die, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what that means is Jesus was trusting in the wisdom, sovereignty, and providence of God. To say thy will be done is to trust that God's will is better than your will, that his wisdom, his providence in your life is always good, even if that includes suffering. Now, you can see why this is the place even the Christian rarely turns, can't you? We rarely turn to this kind of prayer because to do it means to actually say, to really say, Lord Almighty. To actually give God the place of all might almighty sovereign authority in your life, where you would trust in his will, his goodness, his provision, his timing. It's a lot easier to say to the Lord, my will be done, than it is to say thy will be done. And how many of our prayers are, Lord, my will be done? But when we do say thy will be done, we, we gain an access to a joy and a security that comes from God alone, and that's point three. The joy and security that results only when we turn to God. So when Hannah makes this vow, it means she's giving up everything that would have been valuable about having a son. He wouldn't grow up in her house. He wouldn't work in her fields. He wouldn't take care of her in her old age. In other words, she's actually giving up the joy and security that comes with getting the answer to her prayer. And yet, notice what it says after she's done praying and after she talks with Eli the priest. Skip down to verse 18. 
Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Now this is a reversal of verse 7, because remember what verse 7 said. Verse 7 said, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. But then she praised the Lord Almighty, and now she ate something, and she's no longer sad. But did you notice something else? Her joy comes before she has the son. Her joy actually comes before she's even pregnant. And so Hannah has a joy that didn't come from having a son. You expect the order to be Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant, Hannah is joyful and secure. That's what you expect the answer to be. But it doesn't go like that. It goes like this, Hannah prays, Hannah is joyful and secure, Hannah gets pregnant. And the order of events is important. Hannah finally found a source of joy and security that's actually up to the task. It's, it's not having a son to work the fields to bring her dandelions. It's God himself. And we'll look at this next week, but look at how chapter 2 begins. It begins with her saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She says, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. And so this moment where she enters into the presence of God, where she prays this kind of prayer, this means that she's made a shift, and so now God is her ultimate treasure. And because she's now found a God like this, full of wisdom and strength and beauty and compassion, she no longer looks to children to provide her joy and security. Because a child can never do what God does. Now just extrapolate that out to your own Disappointments. A spouse could never do what God does. A career could never do what God does. A fan base could never do what God does. None of these things or people have unfathomable wisdom. None of them are almighty. None of them have unlimited compassion. Only God is like that. And therefore, only God is up to the task to give us ultimate joy and ultimate security. And so Hannah now says to God, you are my joy and my security. And if you give me a son, he'll belong to you. And that's exactly what happens. God gives her a son and she names him Samuel, which is a fun play on words because Samuel means something like God has heard my asking. And just think of how many times, how many times did she ask? And we don't have time to get into this, but Hannah does follow through on her vow. When Samuel was about three or four years old, she brings him to Shiloh, to the house of Eli, and leaves him with Eli to be trained as a priest for the Lord. And so that's the story of Hannah. And that's how the historical account of the nation of Israel becoming a monarchy begins. It begins with an ordinary, humble, hurting woman who prays. And before we wrap this up, there's one theme in this story I want to highlight, and it's this. Barrenness does not mean God-forsakenness. Wherever you feel there is barrenness in your life, whether that's children, a relationship, marriage, brokenness in a friendship or family, financial, whatever, wherever you feel there is barrenness in your life, it does not equal God-forsakenness. It can't mean that. It can't mean that. When we experience times of barrenness or brokenness, our natural reaction is to say that God has forsaken us, but it just cannot mean that. There, because there's a promise in the Bible, and it's reiterated again and again and again. It's in Deuteronomy, it's in Joshua, it's all over the Psalms, it's in the New Testament book of Hebrews. The promise of God says this, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. It says it half a dozen, maybe a dozen times in the Bible. I will never leave you or forsake you. But how can that be? Because if you know your Bible, you know that for every one time this promise is reiterated, there are probably ten times that it says that God's people forsook him and that because of that he will forsake them. So how can it be that God will never leave us or forsake us? We even know our own tendency to wander away from and forsake the Lord. So how can it be that he will never leave us or forsake us? Well, it's because of what Jesus Christ said when he was dying on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was arrested, convicted, and crucified because of his claim to be the Son of God and his ability to forgive sins, when he was dying on the cross, he quoted one of these Old Testament passages about being forsaken of God. As he was dying, he quoted Psalm 22, and in Mark 15 it says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason you can cling to the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you is because Jesus Christ himself was forsaken. That's the Christian gospel message, that his death on the cross took our barrenness, our brokenness, our hopelessness. He was forsaken so that we would never have to be. And so it cannot be that your barrenness means God forsakenness. So what does it mean then? Well, we experience barrenness because we still live in a barren and broken world. There's just no escaping that. Not until Jesus comes back and puts everything right. So the reason you experience barrenness and brokenness is because that's the kind of world we live in. But the promise of Christianity is that for those who are trusting in Christ, for those who look to him for salvation, we can face our barrenness knowing that God is for us. And do you know how we know that he loves us? He knows our pain. He knows our brokenness. Because he went through it himself. We can face our barrenness knowing that God is for us, that he has not abandoned us or forsaken us, that in the midst of our disappointment, he is with us and he's working all things for our good. And that's the reason why next week we can say along with Hannah in any circumstance in chapter two, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let me pray. Father, we are in awe that the Lord Almighty wants to hear from us. That the Lord Almighty knows each of our barrenness, our disappointments, our pain, our trials. And you look on us with compassion and you deliver us. And in that truth, we rejoice. And Lord, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of longing, Lord, would you meet us there? And would we find our joy and our security in you? And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.